Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. It's Chicago trivia time right now. President Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, but he was the second Chicagoan to win the prize. Who was the first? The first was Jane Addams, who won the prize in 1931. And today we're going to learn more about this great woman. Jane Addams was a huge personality who accomplished a huge number of things. Winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, leader of the women's suffrage movement, advocate for the poor, defender of workers and workers' rights, supporter of immigrants and immigrant rights, philosopher of politics and society, activist for the protection of children and the education of children. She's an ardent anti-imperialist, an ardent anti-racist, and the co-founder of the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And I'm most certainly leaving out some of her accomplishments and causes. Forgive me. So with me today to explore her life and impact on the history of Chicago, the history of the United States, and indeed the history of the world are two fantastic Jane Addams Scholars, Rima Lunen-Schultz and Anne Durkin-Keating. Welcome, Rima and Anne. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, indeed. <laughs> okay. Rima Lunen-Schultz is a Jane Addams Scholar. She co-edited Women Building Chicago, a biographical dictionary, 1790 to 1990. And she most recently co-authored Eleanor Smith's Whole House Songs, Music of Protest and Hope in Jane Addams, Chicago, which was released in 2020. She is currently writing about Jane Addams as a major political figure in the American reform tradition. Anne Durkin Keating is professor of history at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. She is the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Chicago and the author most recently of The World of Juliet Kinsey, Chicago Before the Fire, which was released in 2019. So before we dive deeper into her influence, ideas, and impact, let's just get to know Jane Addams on a more basic biographical level. Jane Addams was born in 1860 in a small prairie village located just west of Chicago, we recall from previous episodes that Chicago was founded in 1833 with a mere 200 inhabitants. 27 years later, when Jane Addams was born, the city of Chicago was already booming and had a population of 109,000 people. By the time Jane was 10, Chicago's population had doubled again to 250,000 people. By the time she turned 20, it had doubled yet again, reaching half a million people. By the time she was 30, it would double in size yet again, hitting 1 million. And by the time she was 50, it doubled yet again to over 2 million people. 
So this was most certainly a fascinating time to be alive, experiencing these huge waves of migration, the boom of the city in ways we can hardly imagine. But maybe we need to start by looking at those early years. Rima, how would you describe her childhood and her family life at home? I think Adams had, in many ways, a idyllic life, but also one that was tinged with sadness and loss that she was never quite able to get over for the rest of her life. Uh, she was the last child born to uh, Sarah and John Adams, who had come to Cedarville in the 1840s, actually 1844. And her father was a prosperous, important person in the town. Uh, he was the... Uh, richest man in Stevenson County, uh, which is not to make him a Vanderbilt, but certainly to uh, make him a man of status and importance. He was part of that pioneer generation that developed the Midwest. He was interested in railroads and banking, in land development, and he was a miller. And Adams had several sisters and a brother. Her mother died when she was two. Uh, she was until the age of six when her father remarried, really mothered by the oldest sister at the time. That sister dies. Uh, the stepmother, like all good fairy tales, isn't a terrific <laughs> person. <laughs> She's a fancy lady and doesn't have the qualities of good Christian stewardship that I think uh, Adams really believed in and felt that her father uh, really exemplified. Uh, he was the state senator. He was a very early proponent of Whig economic uh, development and then Free Soil and the Republican Party. He was one of the people who went to Ripon, Wisconsin, to that meeting that created the Republican Party. He was a, a colleague of Abraham Lincoln. He was a political liberal of the classic sense he was an admirer of uh, Giuseppe Manzini and others who were looking for political democracy and a secular state that had a uh, civic community where citizenship was important in a matter of personal conscience. And this was the kind of... Uh, political climate that the young Jane really grew up in because she was close to her father as the youngest child. Uh, while he was away a lot, he was also a person who she talked with. She sat in his library. She read his books. She traveled with him. 
Uh, she went to Rockford Seminary uh, as her sisters had a, ahead of her, uh, which was a evangelical Christian seminary for girls. And in that context, she had a reasonably good education. It was lacking in certain things, but it gave her enough of a start in life to think about reading and thinking on a grand scale. And so did her father. So she admired him. And it was important to think about the way he felt his role was in terms of leadership in the community of Cedarville and that area. And I am impressed with the fact that she could think about the rest of the world through his eyes as a young person, because Cedarville was really a very small place. And yet it seems like she was connecting to a larger place. I have visited Cedarville on a number of occasions, and I am always, again, struck by the fact that this woman starts there and ends up being a world leader. So was it a farm a farming village essentially? It was essentially a farming village. Uh, the Adams estate, so to speak, was the uh, central feature of the village. He had the they had the biggest house. They they were the millers. There for example, the private library of John Adams served as the public library. Uh, he was the on the boards of the two Protestant churches in town, even though he was not a member of either one of them. Uh, he was a person who uh, people looked for guidance. And so uh, the rest of town is very small. It was small then, and it's not terribly small now. Now, Rockford, on the other hand, which was about 30 miles away, where she went to college or seminary, was in its booster literature wanted to be considered the Lowell, Lowell, Massachusetts, the great textile industrial town of the first industrial revolution in the United States, the Lowell of the West. That's what they wanted to think of themselves as. And uh, they were a small industrial town at the time. So if you went to Rockford and that environs, you saw what was happening in the development of, of the United States economy. And uh, there were immigrants there, and there were probably Catholics there. So it wasn't, but, but Cedarville was a very small place and a farming place. I'd like to go back and hit on two specific points from her childhood and her relationship with her father. Were they raised to be staunch anti-slavery uh, advocates? I, they were abolitionists, yes. And I, you know, I want to I want to say something a little bit about how how strong that was and what that actually meant, because we we as um, today as contemporaries thinking about race. Uh, we have to understand what the 19th century meant when uh, they said they were against slavery. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean they understood what an integrated world or an integration would look like. They knew they didn't want people to own other people, and they wanted the slave economic system to be abolished. But other things about the relationship that ex-slaves would have with free men and women, that, that there were a variety of ideas about it. And I think that it was less worked out. I want to say that uh, because I think that that later plays into the uh, ideas and the mindset of the progressives um, as they think about race. And I think it's a very important thing. I think that they, uh, that there was a respect for people that came out of the Adams family that was very important and that slavery was not tolerated as an idea in any way or form. There was no apology for it in any way. Anne, did you want to add something on this point? Yeah, just just that it's a noblesse oblige, that it's that there that this is a stewardship and that there is definitely a sense of having the big the bigger picture. The Adams has had the bigger picture yes. rather than everyone else. And so it's sharing that in that way. And I think to Rima's point, that's going to influence what the progressive era looks like. And and to follow on, this would was my second question. I got the sense of Jane Addams that she did feel that she had this leadership responsibility. So to what extent was the equality of women, for example, part of the upbringing she received (laughs) from her father? It's interesting because uh, in 20 years at Whole House, which is her very popular Uh, autobiography that was published in 1910 and even earlier versions starting in 1906 came out. So the uh, narrative of her life that she puts together was an important part of the Adams political rhetoric that she constructed So we have to know that. So this is what she wanted us to know about herself. And what she doesn't do in 20 years at Hull House is talk about any women. She talks about Abraham Lincoln. She talks about Leo Tolstoy. She talks about John Hoy Adams, the most honest, decent man she knows. No women, in fact, it's striking. And what what do you think that means? Well, I, I have a lot of ideas about it. We will <laughs> talk about it. Uh, she does not frame her life in the context of the major social movement of the 19th century, the woman movement. She frames her life, her life and her work in a movement which I believe is best understood as the secularization of the Christian missionary movement, the Christian stewardship movement, into a kind of secularized version of how 
a Western Protestant Christian worldview will come to grips with the fact that the cities and towns in the United States and really the rest of the world is filled with people who are not Christian, white Protestants. And that's what's really happening. And uh, how do we have democracy? How do we have a politics, an ethical relationship with everyone? How do we have culture? And so her uh, approach is then to put herself in the framework of liberationists. And who are these liberationists? Well, Abraham Lincoln has liberated the slave. He, She says at the end of the chapter that is about Lincoln, he has opened, this is not exactly the words, but it's summarized, I'm summarizing it. He has opened up the pathway for us, our, my generation. He has shown us what the route is, what the direction is. And we must go forward and take it to the next direction. There's unfinished business. What has Tolstoy done? He has shown us a similar kind of moral or ethical decision as an individual. He has said, in the context of a totalitarian system, I'm going to free my slaves. I'm going to do the deed is how to be a morally responsible human being, a person of character, a person of, 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 of goodness. And I think she is putting herself in this, and that is an even bigger picture for her than the emancipation of women or getting the vote, which is important. It becomes, at a certain stage, things change because she learned some things about politics. Chicago teaches her a lot. And she decides that women have got to vote if other things are going to happen that she wants to have happen more immediately. And uh, she becomes much more involved in suffrage. But that is not her first stance. Now, on a personal level, her valedictorian speech at Rockford, where she has avoided becoming involved as a missionary herself, that is not what she is going to study or prepare herself to be, and she has avoided even uh, becoming a convicted Protestant. I mean, she isn't. She doesn't become a member of any congregation. She doesn't get baptized in, 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 uh, in the conversion. She avoids all of this. In fact, one of the things she says about colleges, by spending those four years avoiding uh, the emphasis there was on becoming a Christian missionary, she really got strong in being independent and thinking about life Uh, in an independent way. So that gave her that spine she needed later. 
But what does she do? She talks about Cassandra, the ancient woman who is not listened to by her society. And she knows something and she tells them something and she wants to be a leader and she's ignored. So in that sense, her own ambition, her own desire to be a leader, to make a statement to other people about what needs to be done is on her mind. And the question is, you know, how is she going to find a route to do this? How is she going to find a strategy that makes sense in the culture that she is living in? Right. So women's rights per se were not a huge part of her childhood then. Right, right. However, she obviously got some sense from somewhere somehow that as a woman, she could actually do these things as well. She didn't think that, or her father didn't give her the sense that, oh, you have to find a husband and have kids and, you know, do that. She, there was some role modeling that had to come from somewhere. Well, certainly her her father, uh, who tragically dies when just the year she graduates, in 1881, they go on a trip and... Uh, to kind of celebrate and relax as a family. And he uh, has a, an attack of appendicitis and he ends up dying. And it's a shock and it's a terrible shock to her. And she credits it with uh, sort of pushing her into a kind of a, a period of, of, of depression, of, of lack of, of uh, lack of direction. She would have, it implies, been better directed had he been around. Um, I think that his, his, certainly he was a man who believed that young women should be educated. No question. He was part of that middle and upper middle class pioneer generation in, in, in the United States that was eager to follow John Stuart Mill's uh, advice about educating young women. And uh, he sent all of his daughters to college or to the seminary. And he wanted Adams to go on. Uh, She had illnesses and uh, uh, spinal uh, issues. And it's not clear whether it was going to be possible for her to have children. And so early on, I think she began to think that she was not, she was not suited for motherhood. And I don't know, biography is very, uh, it's a very interesting field. Historians have to be careful when they try biography to not speculate too much. My sense is that uh, Adams was disappointed that she went to Rockford Female Seminary and not to one of the new women's colleges in the East Coast, like Smith or Vassar. Her very good friend, Julia Clifford Lathrop, who comes from Rockford and who had a very similar upbringing, very close to the kind of upbringing that Jane Addams had, uh, went started at Rockford, but went to Vassar. 
And Adams really was jealous of that. And she always leaned on Lathrop for um, the, the kind of finishing, the kind of refinement that she felt that Lathrop had picked up by being at Vassar that, that Adams felt she hadn't had. So, um, well, hopefully later in life, she realized that staying in Chicago gave her an education that she couldn't get anywhere else just by being in the city. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But uh, and Lathrop worked with her. But um, I think that the idea that women should be educated was was in their circles was was one of the models, one of the things that that certainly shaped her. And um, she expected to do this sort of thing. I mean, this was all kind of new stuff. But I would say that certainly her stepmother was not a feminist. And her stepmother would have been very happy. Uh, Well, I can't say that. That's not true. I think her stepmother (laughs) might have been. We could pretend to think we know, but... She could have been happy if Jane Addams had stayed around and maybe even married one of the uh, one of the sons who was a stepbrother, George, and lived a life that was close to home and where the family could have uh, consolidated the inheritance from the father after he died, and uh, the stepmother would have had a companion and. Uh, and so forth. Uh, she resented, uh, we know this, that she resented Jane Addams uh, investing in Hull House and in moving uh, Cedarville for Chicago. And we have very little evidence that Anna Haldeman Adams, uh, the second, you know, the stepmother, ever even came to Hull House. Uh, to visit. If she did, it was okay. Well, not we're, we're, we're getting, yeah, we're, we're getting, getting ahead of our story, way ahead of ourselves. Uh, but that's that's. I think we need to turn the page and get to the next chapter. So I just kind of want to sum up what I my big takeaway from this. Despite the fact that Jane Adams grew up in a teeny fa- farm village, her her father was actually quite, I guess we would say, enlightened or progressive in the sense mm-hmm. that he was. Uh, not actually telling her things like, oh, you have to stay at home and not learn or whatever. So she she did have access to ideas, which allowed her to then see the world. She did go to university, but you mentioned the next big thing that happened in her life was the death of her father. And then she did inherit a bunch of money. I read somewhere that it was the equivalent of several million dollars from her father, which is a lot of money. No? No, no. 60,000. But the equivalent to today's. Well, well, yeah, it was, it gave her, it it would have, if she had simply kept it intact, uh, she would have had an income of about 10,000 a year, which was a lot in 1881, and did not have to work, did not have to worry about having uh, an occupation and so forth. She was... She was independently prosperous enough. So so she has some measure of financial independence, yes. despite the sadness of her father dying. And I think maybe the next big 
event we should talk about is her uh, her her European travels then because this is the theme we start to want to build into this story is her connection with well transatlantic cultures okay well Adams went with her fa- with her um, mother and other uh, friends and relatives to uh, Europe in uh, a- 1883 to 1885, they traveled extensively. That was one of the first uh, times that she had any um, any insights into places where social activism was uh, was attempting experiments with uh, poverty and with social conditions, and. I think that that was the beginning of of her awakening in 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 that direction. It's hard to know precisely when she really began to have a a kind of analytic understanding of of the uh, social conditions and was putting things together. She was always sympathetic or empathetic to uh, those in need and had a desire to be of service. And that was a, uh, you know, coming out of this kind of stewardship thing. But she was beginning to read the, the great volume of both uh, fiction and beginning uh, social criticism and social theories that Europeans were writing and Americans to try to make sense of the chaos that industrialism and urbanism had created in the world. I, I think that the feelings that uh, a great transformation had begun and that the uh, traditional agricultural societies of the world were crumbling, that the very existence of uh, traditional values were at risk, that it was possible to imagine that human beings would not somehow be able to educate and develop the next generation in any kind of uh, wholesome or humanistic way anymore because of the changes that were occurring technologically and the really unregulated situation in terms of industrialism where people were living in unbearably difficult and almost unspeakably uh, impoverished conditions in cities and, you know, the Dickensian world that was being depicted uh, both by the romantic, the beginning romantics, uh, but by the new science, social scientists that were emerging. And people were looking for answers. You know, what can we do? What is, what, 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 let us define what is happening to us and let us figure out what to do. And of course, the major idea that Adams had begun to wrestle with even before her European trip, this big European trip, was when she was in college, 
not that it was taught in the classroom, but that Adams sought outside of the classroom in the little study groups that she as a leader in her little college, in her little seminary college, uh, created. They had a study group where they were reading Charles Darwin. This was very important. She be she realized that that they did not have enough science as women. They had to know about math and science, and this was very important. And she always felt a a, a deficit in this direction. And she had become very interested in anthropology and so forth, and and social science in general, and. When she was in Europe, she was meeting, she was going to museums, she was going to uh, the places that the Americans tended to go to, you know, as, uh, you know, the watering holes of the, uh, of, of wealthy Americans who so, were uh, visiting. But she was also... We're, we're talking like London, yes. Paris, Rome. Did yes, she make it to yes. Germany? She made it to Germany, and she was, and she loved Germany, and she loved the uh, the music uh, of Germany. Uh, she loved the uh, places where the choruses and um, music productions, which would go, you know, which were annual, um, were were performed, and wrote about them and wrote back to people in, in, in the United States about them. She was very interested in the uh, Rome and the catacombs and the religious places. And in this case, she was interested in finding the earliest information she could, well, the information about the earliest times of Christianity because she, like many Protestant Americans of her, of her uh, social circles, were critical of what had become a kind of sectarian, dull, denominational uh, bureaucracy of the many churches, you know, all the different flavors of churches in the United States. And she, they were looking for a more authentic religious experience where were they going to get it and they were and on this on the other hand they were shocked and dismayed by the displays of roman catholicism especially when they were in rome and and that was a also a theme of of adams when she was visiting these places because what she saw was the uh, the worst abuses of what she felt uh, had corrupted uh, the early Christian uh, pre pre uh, Constantine Church, and so she was very interested in getting back to a kind of pure Jesus social justice Sermon on the Mount type of communitarian Christianity. Okay, that was one of the themes. So as she would go to the monasteries and the other places of uh, of religious interest, uh, she was having an inner dialogue. She wasn't just going as a spectator. She was going as a person who was reading and thinking and, and, and kind of trying to find her 
way in in all of this in defining what history was telling her what meaning she was going to come away from these experiences of travel and she believed in travel she thought that travel opened you up in ways which nothing else could and and she saw people the the ordinary people she was interested in ordinary people and in some ways uh her descriptions of the kind of poverty she saw in london for example they're breathtaking the 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 uh the descriptions and it's amazing because i suspect that there could have been descriptions of such poverty when she lived in baltimore which she did with her mother or stepmother for a period of time around the same time but somehow she needed to get out of america to even come back and see american poverty i don't know if that exactly makes sense to you but there was something about that perspective of going abroad of seeing the old world that made her be able to see the new world thank you and do you want to add something about the poverty angle on the poverty angle the one thing that that i think Rima and I have talked about that I also think is interesting is that she doesn't go to study in Europe. So there is a whole group of Americans who are yes. going to and in particular going to to Germany to to do advanced graduate work that in economics and in sociology right. that's going to lead them to more robust analyses of the poverty that right. Adams describes. So she's she's describing something, but she doesn't enroll in a university program. And that contrasts with some of the people that she's going to have that are going to come to Hull House and affiliate with Hull House who do do that, right? I mean, someone like Florence Kelly. Um, go ahead, Rima. Uh, well, absolutely. Florence Kelly, who uh, is very important when we get to the opening of whole house and the the 1890s the uh anti sweatshop uh crusade and the uh labor politics there's no question that the early years at hull house were infused with ideas and references and stimulation by individuals whose own formation as social thinkers was uh happened because they had gone to germany so german and, and it's interesting because i had this i was telling ann about this i had this thought a couple of day nights ago when i was thinking about talking to you andy uh and i was thinking about gee you know we're talking going to be talking to germany and this was kind of exciting and i was thinking there's too much emphasis on toynbee hall and that's the the big the big uh in her second big trip to europe which she goes uh with ellen gate star uh in 1887 1888 and it's at in, during that trip that she makes the decision 
that she's going to open up a settlement house in uh, Chicago. And she talks about, you know, being at this bullfight in Spain and how, you know, how ashamed she is that she could sit through a bullfight. You know, what's her life about? You know, she's got to do something that's meaningful. And, and then she talks about her, the experience she has in, at Toynbee Hall. And she, of course, writes letters back about the best thing that happens to her is in, in England is that she, she's been at Toynbee Hall. But the real excitement about the European experience and the European experience of other Americans who are flocking to German universities to get their doctorates and to study and postdoc work and so forth is that they are being exposed to a kind of thinking about history and culture and the new social sciences, which allows them to make this extraordinary cultural turn of thinking. It allows them to turn away from a rigid, absolutist, a priori understanding of the economy, uh, which we call laissez-faire, which says it's the survival of the fittest, it's dog-eat-dog world, and guess what, folks? Don't do anything about it. It just has to happen. That's life. And they turn, they turn culturally to a, an idea, a great idea, a historicist idea that we are the products of the construction of life uh, in history itself, the unfolding of history. And that's what we have to participate in and we can help direct it in positive ways. And so everyone from W.E.B. Du Bois to Richard T. Eli uh, to... Uh, Florence Kelly, people who come to Hull House and infuse Hull House with these ideas, make Adam's own desire to create for, in a social evolutionary way, a strategy that will advocate for progress in a communitarian or cooperative non competitive way. And this is very, very important. And this is the transatlantic deal that we're really, uh, I think, ought to underline and um, be very grateful that it happened. Well, in previous episodes, we talked about German immigrants, and yeah. many of them were fleeing political persecution because they advocated, so they were advocating against empire and uh, monarchy. Right, right. And so they eventually do, they're able to get this social democracy kind of, although there is still an emperor. But some of the first social programs created by states was the new German social programs that uh, von Bismarck instituted, yes. such as social security. Now, back then it started when people turned 70 so basically, it was a social security that no one would ever get, but still the concept of <laughs> right, uh, <right. laughs> of civic 
communal goods, senior citizens' homes, homes here, at least if you were in Hamburg, there are still old homes for widowers of seamen. And lots of these social programs, concepts were brought over by the German immigrants to Chicago. And in fact, some of the first public parks and children's playgrounds were built by German immigrants in Chicago in the 1870s and 80s. But that is that. Is that. Whole, ho- whole House keeps coming up. So I think it's time that we settle back into Jane Addams coming to Chicago and deciding to stay in Chicago and opening the settlement house. So maybe, Anne, do you want to take over the story at this point? Sure, sure. I, th- I think what's really interesting, so we've got Jane Addams learning all these, uh, learning about this wider world in Europe. She's also, um, there are also other people who are doing this who are doing more intensive, deliberate study in universities, but hers is a more, um, it's, it's more an experiential uh, learning that she's doing. But she and Ellen Gates Star come back to Chicago and I think, or come to Chicago, and I think it's really important to think about what Chicago looks like in 1889 to have a sense of this. I mean, it's an immigrant city, as you've noted. I mean, four of five, 80% of Chicagoans um, in, are in the metro area. So in Chicago, our immigrants are the children of immigrants. So this is 80%, right? So most most people living in the metro area are, are immigrants. The reason they've come to Chicago is in large measure because of that industrial growth that's taking place. So the large majority of those immigrants are workers. They're going to go in and work in the factories and uh, industrial processing that's taking place in the metropolitan area that's growing in the metropolitan area, whether it's due to railroads, steel, food processing, uh, lumber, there's all kinds of, the the industries go on and on and on, and it's really growing the city in amazing ways. And in 1889, Chicago will grow dramatically with a major annexation. So that's when they hit that one, they're going to be hitting that one million population in, in 1890. Those workers, those immigrant workers, are building their own neighborhoods, I mean, there's outside help. I'm not suggesting that, but they're building their neighborhoods around their work. So there are going to be immigrant worker neighborhoods emerging around the work sites, those the industrial sites across Chicago, whether it's back of the yard, South Chicago, the near west side, the near north side. So the city then is being created uh, is is a core but it's surrounded very much. And along the railroad lines, you're going to find worker immigrant communities. And those worker immigrant communities are largely unknown to people like Jane Addams, unless you're going as a tourist. So she saw them in in London and describes those neighborhoods right, in London right. because that's, that, those are places that she would not have gone to in in a in a, an American city that she knew. Now she's going to come to Chicago and deliberately look for one of those places. But those neighborhoods, I think, are really the essential part of this. The other piece of it that I think is really important, and Rima's alluded to this before, is and it's it's that she has a sense of stewardship of social justice. And one of the places where she really understands that is uh, in labor disputes, right? So I think it's really hard to think about the founding of Hull House in Chicago history without putting it alongside of 
just three years after Haymarket. So the Haymarket, the, the labor unrest in 1886, across 1886, where laborers are striking and have actions against many, many of the industrial employers in Chicago, whether it's Cyrus McCormick's Reaper plant or whether it's the lumber shovers or whether it's the furniture makers, many of whom are German immigrants uh, in Chicago, they are, uh, they have just a, I mean, 1886 is horrific. I mean, with the ending of it all being um, really the quashing of the labor movement in in many ways for um, for a period of time. And I think Adams, though, and others, and I would put George Pullman and Jane Adams in the same boat here, people with money and thinking about this labor unrest. They don't know where people live. They don't know much about their lives. What can we do? And it's thinking about how do we make this um, what can we do, right? What can be done from uh, to improve this situation? There's a fear of of revolution here. I don't think there's any question at all about that. Um, even if in 1886 the revolution was put down, or this potential revolution, I think there's a real fear of it. Marshall Field, who's the department store magnet in Chicago, his reaction is buy more guns. You know, bring in the Gatling guns and be ready for war. And I think that someone like Jane Addams comes into this situation and she takes um, what she saw in her European travel. She takes what her father has been talking, uh, has, has taught her, what she learned about uh, Christian missionizing from Rockford, even if she didn't embrace. And she and her good friend Ellen Gates Starr are going to create this settlement there. Great. Thank you, Anne. This seems like a good place to pause our story for now with the founding of Hull House, the first settlement house in Chicago in 1889. We'll explore the impact of Hull House on the city of Chicago in our next episode, and we'll also examine the rest of Jane Addams' life and accomplishments, including her international peace activism. Thank you, Rima and Anne. I look forward to continuing our conversation about the phenomenal life of Jane Addams next time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.